Thank you so much to Datadog and Century.io for sponsoring Does Not Compute. Datadog is not just another logging service. It's a monitoring analytics platform that seamlessly combines metrics, distributed application traces, and logs into a single unified platform for developers and DevOps teams. Datadog doesn't just collect your logs. It actually monitors the performance of your entire application from the front end to the database and everything in between. It lets you take a deep dive into the individual traces that touch every part of your application. Their key APM tool is called Trace Search and Analytics, which lets you wade through the massive amounts of events by filtering by user-defined tags, like a user ID, for example. And there's Watchdog, which uses machine learning to automatically detect and alert you of performance anomalies. You can even inspect right down to the code level for applications that are written in Python, Ruby, Go, Java, Node, and now even .NET. You can even build a custom dashboard and fill it with graphs suited to your application's needs and start a discussion with your team by adding annotations to the graphs. It's really easy to get started. There are over 250 turnkey integrations for things like AWS, Nginx, Kubernetes, Slack, and so much more. And I've done this before. Installing the Datadog client on your server is literally a one-line command. It's that easy. So Datadog is offering DNC listeners a free trial, and as an added bonus for signing up and creating a dashboard, they'll even send you a free Datadog t-shirt. You can start your free trial today at datadog.com slash does not compute. And again, Datadog will send you a free t-shirt for signing up and creating a dashboard. That's at datadog.com slash does not compute. Thanks, guys. Well, Sean, welcome back. We missed you. you I missed you. You did not. I missed your smell. I missed your taste. What is... Acreman, is that yeah, Acreman? Yeah, got it. You got yeah, it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Uh, it was a good week. It was a long week. Just lots of driving. That's the one thing that I forgot. I I didn't know that I had forgotten about this so quickly after moving back from Vermont. Is that it takes twenty minutes to go anywhere <laughs> uh, where we were before, but we were staying with one of Jimmy's friends who happened to live an hour from anything, and I didn't even have cell phone service. So, yeah, it was. Um, a lot of driving, a lot of driving that week. Yeah, it's one thing to live in California where it's a gigantic state, but at least there's stuff. At least there's people. Uh, yeah, the, the the 20 minutes from everything is not a joke in rural New England. It's not a, it's not a joke, no. And I, I was woken up or wakened a few times by horses, if that tells you anything. <laughs> <laughs> horses outside the window. But it's cool. Yeah, it, Vermont itself is interesting too because there's like some mountains that just run smack th- through the middle of it. So there's the 89, which kind of goes from from east to west ish, but it goes north at the same time, and that's the main highway that goes through Vermont. So if you're if you're if you're like staying close to the highway, it's fine because you're just you, you can drive 75 the whole way, 75 miles an hour the whole way there. But if you have to go. Uh, west at all that's when it it kind of sucks because there's basically two two passes uh over the mountain and we have to take one of the passes every time we're going to or from anywhere and uh yeah so you lose service it was snowing actually (laughs) the last couple of days (laughs) uh so we were headed to the airport and uh it had been snowing and there were just a trail of cars because a semi decided to drive 25 miles an hour uh, over this mountain pass, which wasn't even really terrible. I think I think the 17 is way worse. The 17 here that goes from San, uh, San uh, I can't even talk, San Jose to Santa Cruz. There we go. Too many sands over here. Uh, the 17 is way more dangerous, I think, but this, this semi was driving like 25 miles an hour the whole way. It didn't even have a trailer. It was just the cab. Oh, my God. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what was I saying? Yeah, so going, like going laterally across Vermont can be tough if you're not sticking to, I think it's the 89 is the main, the main highway through there. Anyhow, That's why they made the state so, uh, so tall. Is that why? Yeah. Uh, science. Well, science. Yeah. It's cool though. I mean, it was, it was a, another change of pace, I suppose. See, you know, it was like the weather was pretty okay. Some rain, but you know, you're driving by these mountains and little, little streams and rivers and, and stuff all the time, which can be, can be nice, but a little bit relaxing, but uh, yeah, it's a good week. Jamie graduated. Awesome. Officially a Juris Doctor. Congratulations. That's awesome. The co- the commencement speaker kind of grandstanded a little bit, but that's that's going to happen, I suppose. I think it's normal. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, it was a senator, I think. She was grandstanding. I felt like I was watching C-SPAN. But uh, apart from that, it was good. She graduated, so now it's time to study for the bar, and I get to run interference. So uh, I'm basically the bouncer for our office door now. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, So, uh, yeah, what have you... I don't think I've even talked to you since the week before I left, so I don't really have any sort of clue what's been going on over there. Yeah, not much uh, new... In terms of news, it's just been plugging away at front end uh, stuff. I <laughs> added dark mode to RHR. I, oh, nice! I, I don't know. I I just uh, I was just playing. It was Friday, and I was like, I don't really, I don't have anything I can really do in one day and finish it for the weekend. And I was like, these CSS styles need to be cleaned up, and so I cleaned them up and kind of refactored things out into light and dark mode and and I added some colorblind uh mode as well for uh some of our users who are red green colorblind which turns out when your user base is almost entirely male uh, a good percentage of them are going to have <laughs> that so uh that was uh that was good a very uh you know people were happy about that it was a, a feature we had in the old console i just never got around to migrating it over which is totally my bad were you are you're still using tailwind right for that that is correct and i did eventually as part of that process did upgrade to tailwind uh 1.0 beta yeah so i actually upgraded something to tailwind 1.0 too so we can talk about that uh i'm interested to know and i would maybe love to see a blog post about this too is how you did uh different different themes i suppose or how you set up your do you have some sort of like theme switcher so someone can choose i assume that you do have that someone can choose like say hey i'm colorblind hey i'm not i want light i want dark i'm interested to see how you set that up with tailwind yeah i'm not super happy with it but the i can give you the the high level organization of it Mm -hmm. basically all of the sort of contextual uh semantic styles are basically all entirely padding and layout, right? Mm-hmm. And then th- those like the classes for different components, more or less, that I've kind of created, that I reuse. And then from there, it's just, uh, there's like a light.css and a dark.css. And those are like, I only have light and dark right now, but I can use those as the basis for other light and dark th- themes. And and basically that's where I just put, I just put only color styles in those. Um, okay. And, uh, and basically the selector for those, I basically just put a class on the body tag that, or, you know, it's like a very high up root element mm-hmm. that just, uh, says whether it's light or dark. And then the selectors just kind of cascade down. So, uh, yeah, again, I'm not super happy with how it came out. Cause there's like a, there is kind of a mix of semantic and utility classes in there. And it never really went all in one direction or the other. So there's uh, lots of duplication, lots of cleanup to be done there, but at least I separated it out that much, you know? Yeah, I'd never really have taken the plunge into uh, re- like actually designing a real color theme for for anything I've worked on. I mean, Design Collective largely because uh, the code that I got had its, its kind of own SAS-generated utility class system. And so I actually haven't really even written any CSS for Design Collective, Collective in like three years. <laughs> I've just been using those. Uh, and yeah, so I haven't really learned or looked around about uh, how people are doing this, but it seems that that would have been my, my guess. Like take some sort of selector on a root element, like you said, body, and then I was even thinking, especially in terms of of Tailwind, you could you could maybe even use like apply or something like that, and then apply certain colors. Uh, are you using like? So I've seen people in the Tailwind docs, especially they do colors like indigo, blue, red. But I've also seen other places do colors like primary, secondary, tertiary. Uh, do you have a preference over of like one one system over the other? Well, that was interesting because Tailwind doesn't. I have some of both, right? I use all Tailwind's default colors, uh, but then I also have a few more uh, things that have more meaning. And uh, mm-hmm. that doesn't really fit with theming, unfortunately, because Tailwind's definition for all those colors is just a, a JavaScript uh, config file, more or less. And that gets generated right. statically, basically at compile time. So you can't have something have the same name but have two different colors associated with it. Oh, I see. Okay. 
in the config file at least, right? Like if you said, uh, I don't know, link color, right? Like you want your, all your links to be blue, but maybe in dark mode, you want your links to be green. I don't know. Uh, you can't specify that in the config. There's only one theme more or less, right? Mm-hmm. So as far as I can tell, I mean, someone correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, that was from what I could tell. So uh, you basically end up creating these kind of meta utility classes on top of that in your own themes that say, okay, you know, links are blue. And then you just apply blue or apply green, right? Right. Yeah. That's what I was thinking that you could have some sort of like theme dash classes and then based off of something or other, you could apply like you were saying. Yeah. And at that point, like you really should just be using uh, variables in your (laughs) SAS files, right? I mean, it's not SAS. I'm using post. Uh, The other thing is I'm using post CSS and I really wanted to use SAS, but uh, I don't know. Tailwind recommends post CSS. I'm just kind of going with it. And... Yeah, I mean, it looks like in, in in briefly searching their docs, it looks like there's a way you could do this. Use use different uh, use actual uh, CSS spec variables. Uh, post CSS. I don't know what the actual term is, but you know, dash dash color whatever uh, for your variable syntax. It looks like that's supported, which is kind of neat. Uh, it must be new in 1.0. Yeah, that's that's definitely the next step. Like I said, I really just wanted to get something working. And sure. So that's really cool, though. I bet it's it's a nice quality of life thing to get out the door, and I think that, like you said, I think like that probably is something that hits really close to home to some users or a percentage of your user base, right? So that makes them feel like you care and you're and you're listening. Yeah, and this is another fun thing that I think Mikhail and I talked about this off the air last week, which is too bad, but uh, he was sending me screenshots of Trello, and what Trello does is they have you can attach like colors to different cards in the little Kanban board. Uh, and they have a checkbox you can turn on that basically takes the color, but it also overlays a pattern on top of that color. That's kind of unique. It kind of differentiates it more. And so that's, it's kind of just useful for everyone, but it's kind of an accessibility feature as well. Whereas, you know, it allows you to differentiate things if color is not enough information. And, I kind of took the idea with Ren with it. So like we have these, a list of all of our ham radio stations and there's this availability indicator. And right now it's just a rectangle, basically. It's either green or red or orange or purple or, you know, it indicates the status of the station. But like at a glance, that's really not that useful. You know, it's they're all the same shape, but they're all different colors. And so I just uh, gave some shapes to them. You know, I made uh, all the greens are circles, all the reds are squares, all the orange, which means not available. It's like a circle with a cross through it, like the uh, Ghostbusters, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so it just, just kind of given that extra level of differentiation there, it's it's actually like, again, it's it's on the surface accessibility feature, but like, turns out something that, something that everyone can use, right? Yeah, it's, it is nice. I mean, you sent me two screenshots this morning and I had no idea what you were even talking about. Uh, you sent me, I think the after, and you just said after, so I was looking at, I was like, Hey, this looks really nice. I didn't even realize that the shapes and icons were completely different, but in, I'm looking at two of the two right now and I'll, I'll post a link to these in the show notes if you don't mind. Uh, but even like, even not taking a uh, color into to account, it's immediately apparent to me what's happening, like which ones are on which ones are off which ones are disabled etc it's i don't know it's it's much it's more parsable maybe is what i'm meaning to say yeah that's that's it and you know what it's always killed me when mac os transitioned somewhere around god i don't know 10 8 or so basically when they they started taking all of the color out of all the toolbar icons like it no longer became the style to have big glossy colorful toolbar buttons in the finder in any of the applications right and i really really i still miss that like everything's just kind of monochrome icons and i get that's kind of i don't know it's more aesthetically pleasing or you know it's easier to design for you know invert the colors and stuff it's way easier in that sense but yeah but it took me a long time to adjust to that and i still kind of miss those 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 bigger icons because they just had different I don't know again easier to differentiate. Uh, well, that's one thing that I really appreciate about Notion actually is is I have a, a quite a chunk of pages now and I usually assign uh, a in a wow a favorite not a favorite con uh, a, an emoji. <laughs> Good grief! You'll get there. Uh, I usually 
I'm having trouble. Uh, I usually assign the emoji to each uh, each page, and so in the sidebar, it just makes it parsable, right? Uh, like you said, I get the colorful emojis, and I can see them quickly. My eyes, it's like Design Collective is a diamond. Um, my my personal workspace has a house with a tree, and my fixed blade one has a knife. So I don't know. It's I it, I find my my mouse just going to it when I do use the mouse search because. What is the thing we're talking? Notion. Notion has a good grief. Notion has Command P, so you can just hit Command P and start typing. But uh, when I'm when I'm looking at it, I almost immediately always click on the icon, and I don't actually read the title of the workspace. That's funny. Yeah, it's one of my favorite features of Notion. It's just the the picker that lets you assign emoji to pretty much everything. Right. Yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty useful. Although they got to work on that search, though. It's one of the worst emoji search I have ever tried to use and failed at using every time. I don't know why it's so bad, but it's way too fuzzy. What's the Mac control? What's the Mac shortcut? Is it control option space? Yeah. Control command space. Control command space it is. That's the one I always use. Or uh, besides the snippets for Alfred. Alfred, yeah. Yeah, those are the ones that I mostly use, actually. I lied before when I said that I use command control space a lot because I don't. I just use my snippets. Oh, speaking of, I'm looking in the RHR chat here, latest chat message. New sidebar design is a definite winner. So there we go. Awesome. That's great. <laughs> Instant feedback. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Yeah. So um, the other thing, and uh, this is uh, not really, this is just something that's interesting that's kind of unique to our business that I've been working on the past couple of days and I uh, thought you might find it interesting. Um, so we have remote ham radio is kind of a unique business model in the sense that we have basically like a timeshare where each ham radio station that you can connect to is like it's a one-to-one thing you know exactly one person can use it and while they're using it nobody else can use it right Mm -hmm. and in order to sort of make that experience worthwhile basically you have to walk this line between like if you didn't charge anything, someone would just connect up and they would never leave because there's no mechanism for us to boot people off the system, right? Once you connect, right. you have the station. That's that's how we've designed it from day one. Uh, if you make it too expensive, no one's going to connect to the station. And there's this problem, inherent problem with the way remote ham radio works in that like, if you think about a ham radio shack, let's like close your eyes, picture a guy surrounded by like shelves of equipment, Right. There's glowing tubes, there's wires everywhere. It's maybe, you know, like low light logbook, maybe a computer screen, right? And then there's, there's always like background chatter, right? It always has a radio on listening to whatever's going on. And that's just like such a cool part of the experience is just tuning around, spinning the knob, listening to the shortwave bands that are coming from all over the globe, right? Mm-hmm. And with RHR, when you're like, you connect and you're on the clock, like you got to get on, you got to make your contact, you got to log off, right? That's <laughs> you're being charged by the second. It's not conducive to that that kind of more slower paced uh, experience of enjoying ham radio, just tuning around and listening. Mm-hmm. And that's always been a problem for us, right? It's it's just not conducive to that. People like to have their home stations for that stuff, and then if they need a bigger powered stuff, they'll log on and use us. So. What we did is we were trying to we're going to try a new business model uh, in addition to what we do today, where it's kind of a compromise where you can connect up to a station at a really really nominal rate. We're talking like a couple cents a minute or something, you know, like two bucks an hour or whatever it ends up being, right? Mm-hmm. And listen, receive only. You know, you're not allowed to transmit. You can just kind of listen, have it on the background. But if someone wants to grab the station and use it for transmission, you get booted off. So, like, basically, our goal has always been we want the stations on. We want them to be used. We want, you know, we want the capacity to be up. And Right. Because then you're making money. Yeah. I mean, it's it's partly about making money, but it's really more about, and it sounds really, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm I don't know, touchy-feely, but it's really about having the radios on and, like, having the stations be utilized so they're not just sitting there. Right. Right? Yeah. So, this is a new business model that we're going to try. We're going to try this kind of lower-cost shared access where you can log on but there's a chance that you could get booted off and uh you know because obviously you don't want to prevent someone from 
you don't want to take the capacity away, right? Right, right. This it's that's really like just the idea. I mean, besides the things that you're describing to me, they're like the reasoning for introducing this. Just the idea that you can just introduce this, like you have an idea for an additional way that you can build customers. Uh, I mean, like nostalgia aside, right? Uh, you want to have you want to have people connected to the towers because that means that you know your business is making money, your business is operating, and so you're just like, hey, we could do this too, and that becomes an additional revenue stream. That was something that always interested me about Design Collective as well because we'll be sitting here doing our thing and someone will say, oh, hey, this collection of stores are doing this thing, you know, and they want to pay money for it. Or they're doing this thing, we could probably charge money for it. And it just becomes it just becomes another revenue stream. And it's just, you're just sitting there and you're observing something and you're like, oh, there's an opportunity and you just kind of implement it. It's cool that you have the flexibility and freedom to just like identify that, that stream, that additional stream there and just like implement it. The weirdest part of that discovery process that you just mentioned is that no matter what you do, like you're, there's a line and customers are on one side of it and you're on the other side of it. And and there's very, it's often very little transparency across that border, right? Mm-hmm. You, they just know the product. They don't know you. They know the product, and they don't know what it took to get to what they're seeing. And so, like, you put out a price for something. Who, who cares what it is, right? You put out a price for something. People will, will don't like question it. Like nobody's like, well, how'd you get at that? Nobody's like, well, some people could say, well, this could be cheaper, or this could be more expensive. But like, right. they're not going to like. It's just so weird how you can just make a decision and put it out there and then that becomes the truth. <laughs> sure, yeah, they're not going to ask for a line item breakdown of why they're getting charged a certain figure. Yeah, and again, that freedom of to be able to do that is is very, very empowering, especially in this world that we live in where everything is so flexible and malleable and you can just try stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, early on for us, we we were just making money off of online like commissions basically. And uh, we, some feedback that we got from, from prospective stores were that it sounds too good to be true. It's too cheap. Uh, so we don't trust you. It's awesome feedback. Are you kidding? <laughs> uh, it's hilarious. It was hilarious to me. I was like, what? And so we're like, okay, what about if you had to pay this much per month? Yeah, that's too cheap. Okay. What if we had to pay this much per month? Yeah, I'd probably pay that. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> you know, uh, they basically talked themselves into a monthly subscription at that point. And so we just, we just added a monthly subscription and now that's, that's our bread and butter. You know, that's, that's the, the, the business model is tools. And I don't know. So it was interesting because we had, I think the regional assumption was, was an e-commerce business. Uh, and, and what we ended up building and what we're continuing to keep building is a tools based business. Uh, and, and instead of making money through sales online, we make money through people paying us every month. And the e-commerce portion is just one of the tools in in the the chest, so to speak. But yeah, it was an interesting, and it wasn't even really like a pivot. It wasn't like a a, a, a thing where everyone was like, "Oh, we need to change the course of the business and do this." It just kind of it just kind of happened that way. There wasn't like a black and white. We're doing this, and now we need to do that. It was sort of a this seems like it could be useful uh, to to the people that we have. So we put it out there and then more people showed up for it. And so we just continued in that vein. Yeah. I mean, uh, in the same vein, we, we had the same kind of process with very early days of RHR where like we had this, we launched with this hardware only based solution. You had to buy hardware interface box and it was expensive and it was difficult to set up and a pain to support and maintain and and then one day we're like hey what's this WebRTC thing and like proof of concept right let's connect in the web browser and never even touch the radio right and that's 80 percent of our usage now or whatever it is right that's right that's our bread and butter is is in just the, the the web-based interface and that's what people use and love and that's our that's our best experience and yeah, never would have, uh, you know, you just, just gradually happened over time. There was no plan to do that. We were going to, we thought that it would just be kind of a thing that people would use, you know, maybe if they uh, felt like it, right? Not to be the primary interface. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, uh, you got to, sometimes you got to pivot without realizing it. Yeah. So, did you have to do anything? Uh, anything, anything specific? Or was there, was there any engineering time involved in, 
in setting that up or was it just kind of a, hey, we could do this and in a few hours you had it set up? I got surprisingly far in a day and then there's that last, you know, 80-20 rule, right? (laughs) Now I was testing all the edge cases and I'm like, oh, this isn't going to work as well as I thought. So it's a couple more days of work, but uh, definitely worth it just to see how it changes people's behavior and see, see what happens. I mean, a couple of days isn't bad considering that could increase the bottom line. And it wasn't like you sunk a week or two into this thing, not knowing, not knowing if it's going to be useful or not. You know, that's something that I've been having to weigh a lot is I think a lot about it, like time, you know, how much time is this going to take and how much do we actually know about this thing? Is it, are we, are we spending weeks on a guess, you know, and, uh, especially with Paul taking, you know, taking his dream job, which, you know, congrats to him. And I guess that's an, the announcement, I suppose. Like, you know, yeah, Paul, just drop Paul, that had in a, there. <laughs> Paul had a really good offer and, and, you know, he messaged me about it. And I, I've told him this a few times over the course of our, our friendship, over the course of the few like number of years uh, that I'm on team Paul. And if, if that's, you know, if that's going to enrich his life and make his life better, then go, go for it, do it. And yeah. So I won't divulge any more information about that. You know, if he feels he wants to share more about like who he's going to be working for and what he's going to be doing, I'll leave that up to him. But yeah, so that's, that's another thing that's really been on my mind is now that I'm back down to one person for a little bit, you know, time versus energy, uh, how much is going to take, uh, but also how much does this put off and what are the real priorities? And that was something that uh, a discussion that I had to have with Lindsay and the service of your design collective is massive for two developers, uh, just a lot of stuff. And so the last few weeks, I've been having this conversation where like, yeah, this feature would be cool, but honestly, I don't think we need it to be able to sell what we have right now. And if we add it, then it's going to do more harm than good in terms of, I guess like the analogy is like, if you're, if you're mowing lawns for a living and you only got two lawnmowers, you can't just keep adding lawns to, to your to your service area of the places you have to mow, right? Because at a certain point, you're just going to run out of time and you're not going to be able to mow all the lawns. And that's kind of where we're at. Like we have uh, basically a critical mass of features that we have to support and update and maintain, but we only have 80 human hours a week to do it, you know? So that's something that's really been on my mind. And I guess that's why I asked like how long it took and, and all that stuff. No, I mean, it's totally fair question. That's one of the reasons that I'm even bothering to tackle it is because the 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 risk to reward there is uh very low it's a low ratio right it's sure it's, yeah. it's only it's gonna be maybe a week of time uh and you know could be we can always just roll back to it we can always just turn it off if it turns out to be a, a total <laughs> yeah. bomb or you know our revenue gets cut in half because people only connect up to listen at a cheap rate and mm-hmm. uh, abuse it somehow but i i do not think that it's gonna be what's gonna happen. So, yeah, we'll see. I'm I'm really I'm really excited. We something we've talked about for a long time, and there's more additional hardware coming down the pipe where like we'll be able to have multiple people sort of listening at the same time, which means that in hmm. theory maybe this becomes even more desirable to have this feature even just in there because now you're not really giving up anything. You're just adding something. Right. So yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, that's cool. I'd like to take a quick break to tell you a little bit about Sentry.io. Listen, Sentry understands us developers. They know that our code is broken and they just want to help us fix it. Now, in an ideal world, you'd be able to test your code perfectly and cover every edge case. But writing tests, you know, is really difficult and it's impossible to cover every edge case or anticipate the action of a really smart or a really dumb user. Despite your best laid plans, your code eventually will go belly up. Now, you could rely on error reports from your users, but is that really what you want? It's a frustrating experience, and you're going to end up with incomplete or misleading bug reports. It's going to waste the time of both you, your support, and your development teams. That's why Sentry's here to tell you about errors in your code before your customers even have a chance to see them. The error reports include detailed contextual information to help you reproduce and fix the error, including a full stack trace, the commit where that line of code was checked in, and even the developer to blame for it you'll get a breadcrumb trail that tracks the user's every action leading up to the error, so you can reproduce it without ever even contacting them. And Sentry integrates with the deployment pipeline to track errors before they make it to production. Sentry has first-party support for both client and server-side platforms, including a couple of DNC favorites, Vue.js, Rails, and even Elixir. 
So head on over to Sentry.io and give it a try. They have a free developer account, which is perfect for personal projects and early stage applications. Sentry.io, your code is broken. Let's fix it together. Now back to the show. What's uh, enough about me? <laughs> this is your show too. Yeah, just dealing with transition, thinking about transition. Yeah, how's that been going? It's, it's, it's been going all right. I mean, Paul Paul's around until June 1. Uh, or uh, two uh, weeks. Yeah, but yeah. So basically, two two and a half more weeks. And yeah, so just thinking about like it's it's. I guess it's a good time to step back and take stock of like how things have been going, what I think we need to do to improve. Just just taking kind of a holistic look at things. You know, one of the things I mentioned was just having too large of a service area for two people, and kind of kind of basically what I did was I, I wrote up a Google doc and I was like, okay, well here's uh, and it, it so happens that we're actually working on a new pricing page that has everything. So it's kind of redundant for me to write all this stuff in a Google doc, but I wrote all this stuff in a Google doc that basically just outlines everything that Paul and I are responsible for right now from, you know, user facing features to things that are behind the scenes that a user won't even see. Um, and, and Paul and I were just looking at the thing like, man, this design collective is a huge app there's so much stuff that happens in it and there's two of us. And so just been thinking about, okay, is all of this completely necessary? There's a couple of features that I know that not many people use. Only a couple of, only a couple of stores might use this feature, right? So does it make sense to, to shut that feature down for a while? You know, not necessarily strip the code out of the app, but maybe just remove it from the UI, you know? So it's one thing that we don't have to worry about. It's, it's not being used. It's not being exposed. It's there, there's documentation for it, but it's not something that I have to think about today. Is this something that I have to support? Is someone going to start a flash sale and is it going to, you know, all this stuff, right? Just kind of like removing complexity that isn't part of the core feature. And I, I've, you know, I've heard people say it's important is to, to look at your app and, and not only like think about what do we need here, but what can we get rid of here? And I think that's kind of what I've been up to is thinking about, are there things that we can get rid of? Are there things that people don't use? Are there things that people won't miss? And are there things that uh, will reduce the amount of complexity that uh, I need to support? And I think all along the narrative too of, you know, we both talked about our business is kind of growing and pivoting a little bit naturally. Uh, I think that as you do that, you should also maybe drop some things behind you uh, because otherwise it will just become a snowball that's too big to slow down and, and stop, right? So it's kind of like a give and a take. What can we get rid of? What can we keep? And I think more importantly, like what should we get rid of, right? Uh, so I've been thinking a lot about that and writing a lot about that, just kind of in a in a document that I shared with my boss. And yeah, I don't know. That's that's really been the main thing on my mind. Uh, main thing on my mind. I mean, just you know, small bug fixes here and there. Um, more email work, of course, you know, collecting metrics and things like that, but just kind of taking stock of the application and how much has changed in the last two years and where I want it to go and how I think I can get it there. Yeah, it's really interesting thinking, like actively thinking about removing things as part of your process. It's <laughs> yeah. not something that normally you even have the luxury to be able to do, uh, but if you have the data to back it up, I can make that kind of decision a no-brainer. Yeah, so I think we're also kind of in a in a spot, or I guess the, the the type of customer that we have also makes us uniquely suited to be able to do that because the type of customer that we have, they they want sort of a turnkey solution. So they want what we offer, but they don't want to be involved. Most of them, that is, and so that means that I end up building a lot of tools for our team to use on behalf of our customers, and so. If our team's not using the thing, then no one's using the thing, you know? Uh, so we could somewhat safely sunset a couple of things, reduce the surface area. That means that we can actively spend more time making what we have and what people actually use better. And then that means also, that means there's potential for, for new things we want to do, right? So there's a couple of a couple of really big features that we've been wanting to add for a while. But it's just one of those things where I, I told Lindsay, I was like, this is... This is something that I think we need to do eventually, but it's not something we can do right now. And it's interesting because I've never been at the point where I felt okay saying we can't do that. Uh, I think for the past three years, it's always been a, yeah, we can do that if we stretch the timeline out X months or X weeks, right? And now I'm in a spot where I'm saying we can't do that 
with the resources that we have. It's just not possible to to do that and do what we're doing right now. Um, and that was kind of an interesting. Well, the first time it came on my fingers into Slack, I was like, "Wow, I've never said that to her before," and <laughs> it was totally fine. She was like, "I get it. It's it's okay," uh, which was you know a good feeling like to to not be to have someone understand that, I suppose. But yeah, I don't know. A lot of I guess a lot of introspection, a lot of thinking about. Um, what we can get rid of. And like I said, you know, because our team are the, are the ones using the tools that we're building on behalf of our customers, we're in a unique position to where we actually know, uh, on top of, you know, obviously analytics and stuff, but we actually know if something's being used or not. That's a big part of what's been, been going on with me is just thinking. And have you seen that meme where it's, uh, the drug kingpin, what's his name? He's got a show on Netflix. Pablo Escobar. He's just sitting around like staring at an empty pool, sitting in a chair, looking into a field. <laughs> Have you seen that meme? No. Oh, well. I like to think I'm pretty up to date on my memes, but maybe not. I'll have to put it in the show notes. But yeah, so there's basically different scenes in the movie where he's just standing around. He has like this really kind of introspective look about him. And he's just like sitting in a swing and then he's standing on the edge of a pool looking. I just put it in our our show note list. But I feel like that's been me a lot. Um, But aside from that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's just, just a dude standing like looking at nothing or just staring at the the desk surface. But uh, aside from that, I've been kind of exploring a little bit more. Obviously, we've been talking about my forays into messing around different languages. And I blame Paul and Greg for this because all day long, they're just talking to me about C-sharp. And Greg's over here like texting me about Dart. Dart's awesome. Flutter's awesome. The tooling is so good. C-sharp's tooling is so good. Unity is tooling is so good. Grass is always greener, man. The grass is always greener, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so poking around with Dart a little bit seems cool. I mean, just like really everything everything that I'm playing around with are just strongly typed languages, that's all. Uh, and, and uh, you know, class-based languages. And, and so uh, it's, it's interesting. I've been writing Elixir for like two and a half years or something like that. And so I don't think I've even done like, I don't even think I've used any sort of class syntax or anything in like two years. So digging back into like TypeScript and Dart and C Sharp and whatever else, it's such an interesting transition for me. Thinking about instances and methods and interfaces and things like that have been really interesting. Yeah. And I think in general, I don't actually have any data to back this up, but I think in general, people sort of learn in object-oriented style languages and then uh, they sort of discover functional languages as part of something else, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they kind of go that direction. Uh, unless you're basically in a pure CS program at like Northeastern or something where you're starting on like a... Uh, not Perl, what's the word? I'm doing it backwards, it sounds like. That's what it sounds like to me. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, unless you're like... <laughs> in a pure CS program and Northeastern, and you're starting with like yeah. Lisp and working your way up and, you know, <laughs> building everything from scratch. It's like, yeah, definitely. You definitely done things backwards. I mean, you did R- Ruby, but like you did Rails, which doesn't count. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, they do. It doesn't count. It, a lot of it's a lot of it's just kind of like removed from you, I think. Oh, yeah, that's it's what made ma- it way too magical. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, I've been messing around with different things. I, I made a quick Hello World app in, I think it's called Adonis, adonis.js. So basically it's like, that. it's supposed to be like the, um, what's the PHP one? Laravel of JS. It's very, very, very Laravel-like, which I think is cool. it's Adonis, the mortal Adonis. lover of goddess Aphrodite. Oh my. According to <laughs> Wikipedia. <laughs> I did just pull that off the top of my head. I, yeah. It'd be cool if I could. So, I, you know. Messed around with that. It was okay. It has seemingly everything you'd want. You know, it's fine. Uh, I think that's what I'm getting at is most of these things we're looking at. This is fine. And I just keep coming back to maybe it's because I've been writing uh, Elixir and, and Ecto for a while now that I'm just comfortable and I'm, my brain is just thinking that way. But yeah, I don't know. I just keep coming back to Elixir and and, and Phoenix. And I don't know. There There's something about like... I feel like it includes just enough batteries for you, but not too many batteries to kind of pigeonhole you into something that you don't need. So I've been screwing around with a couple of different uh, Elixir and Phoenix projects. And one of them, I started using LiveView. And uh, that was confusing because the docs are the, it's kind of cool, but also, you know, LiveView isn't like fully released yet, but the docs are just 
when you click on them, it takes you to the actual live view module and you get to read the docs that are written uh, in the doc block in the module uh, doc, module doc, mdoc. I, I just always type mdoc because that's my, my snippet. But anyway, yeah, so I read through that, um, started building some stuff with live view. I think I sent you a little video. It was pretty, like, pretty simple just to get just to get like a UI that just updates when data changes. It was kind of striking to me. But apart from that, it was pretty difficult to figure out how to structure things. There's not really many community uh, conventions around it yet. So you basically, it felt like a lot like a lot of like when I was diving into the node world or how people just did whatever they wanted. This tutorial does that. This article does that. Uh, this example repository does a different thing altogether, you know? So I think that was most of my time spent on live view was actually like, Trying to figure out is there is there some sort of convention that I can kind of extrapolate from all of this stuff, and then once I started getting that together, it became a lot easier to figure it out. But I think aside from it just kind of being the wild west still, uh, I think the other thing that was still confusing to me a little bit was when uh, the page renders, you have the base state of it, and then the live view mounts through the socket, and then. Um, you have the socket and, and the socket can disconnect and reconnect uh, just when, you know, without someone reloading, refreshing the page. And so you have to worry about assigns and sessions and stuff like that. So I think in the documentation, there's there's an example of saying like someone can get disconnected and reconnected. And when the session is reconnected or the socket's reconnected, you don't automatically have access to the parent uh, assigns there. So you have to refetch them. So you end up using repo or like basically basically your whatever user account or whatever context functions to get stuff from the database in your live uh in your live uh, it's not a controller i don't know what to call it in your live views i guess it felt kind of weird but oh so interesting so on the initial fetch that doesn't that code does not get called it only gets called if there's an interruption something like that it's like both hmm. So there's 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 a sign. So so basically, when you do, I can't remember. There's what the actual function is called. Maybe it's mount. Uh, and so yeah. So you basically you have. I just have, like, if you have a collection of posts, I might have like a post live module, and then there's a mount fun- mount function in there, and that takes the session. And so you can put whatever you want in the session. So you can put it's basically like your con assigns essentially, and then you get a socket. So it the arity is to you get two things a session and a socket. And so you use a function called assign and you can put stuff in the socket, which then you can use in your actual views uh, for, you know, your templating and stuff. And there's, uh, for this specific case, there's an assign new function, uh, which will only add something to the socket if it's not already there. So it's, it's like there's this weird, interesting case where, uh, on the first render, you can have your stuff, but then if someone gets disconnected and reconnected, you might want to use a sign new because you don't want to just like start overriding stuff that's in, in there already. I don't know. It's, it's still hard for me to follow, but a uh, very interesting piece of technology regardless. I'm sure I just confused a lot of people. You confused me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm picturing yeah. like there's got to be some, obviously if the socket disconnects, the process has died. So the server side state basically goes away i mean without any extra tooling around that maybe it's there is some but i doubt it uh but your client is still there like the the live view client there's still state there and so in theory when it reconnects it should be able to somehow sync that state basically up and be like hey this is the the way i you left me but maybe maybe i'm over simplifying how hard the problem is because because i know it's it's not easy i mean i'm picturing like remember we talked about that article from discord uh a while back where they explain how your session metadata basically follows you and so like if you do get disconnected or they like do a server migration or take a server down and you basically get disconnected. Somehow that metadata is stored and cached and shoved off to some other server. And so basically your session is reconstituted faster than you even realize it went away, right? Mm-hmm. That That's the kind of model I think would be very well suited to live view where, where things are kind of in flux like that, but you have some, some session state that you gotta rehydrate. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's it's hard to follow because there's a lot of forum posts, Elixir forum posts about it where people are confused and asking questions. And basically Chris and, and Jose are like, no, no, no. 
uh, help, trying to help people out. I actually just put a link to the assign new function in the live view uh, docs, which is just above the function itself. Uh, but it's talking about uh, referencing parent assigns when a live view is mounted in a disconnected state, uh, which is sounds fun. <laughs> um, I don't really have too many too much experience with like gen servers and all that because at Design Collective we're just you know, we're using a lot of Redis because Heroku, right? So uh, we use Task a lot, but not a lot of gen servers in 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 uh, kind of in memory state like that. So I haven't had to haven't had to figure out all of that too much. But it was it was fun to play around with. It was something that was just out of my wheelhouse. It was cool. It kind of felt cool to like open up a bunch of different tabs and change stuff and and the tabs were just updating and I was like I didn't really do much at all. All I did was write some elixir and like I put two functions in a live view module and that was all I had to do to get a UI that updated when data changed. It's pretty pretty neat. So on a scale of one to ten, how much did you basically get what was written on the tin with Live View? Like, how much you feel it so far has accomplished kind of what it set out to do for for your particular use case? There are some rough edges, so I know there are some problems with CSRF tokens and things. Uh, you kind of have to manually inject stuff, and I mean that's okay because if you look at if you actually it's it's interesting if you inspect the DOM of a Live View app. Uh, it, it basically, uh, encrypt maybe not the right word, but yeah, so it like serializes up the state and puts it into like a data attribute on something and it uses the, um, uh, a key. You can generate a new secret key. And so, yeah, so it's, it's really interesting. Uh, so there are obviously some rough edges with it there. I, I feel like, I feel like in, in a little while, in some time, it will really hit what they say on the tin. I think really what I was missing was guidance on how how to set this thing up because it, it, it's yeah it's just different like so if you if you're having a you if you have a server rendered app and you have your stuff working in controllers then you have to move it over to a live view well then it's just a different paradigm altogether like you're saying suddenly you have to know about all these different moving pieces right so yeah you get this live sort of updating UI and yeah you didn't have to write a bunch of JavaScript but also you added a lot of complexity in into the mix and i think maybe the one place that it falls short is that i feel like and i could just be misreading a lot of what people are saying but i feel like people are saying oh live view will make your uis interactive and you don't have to write any javascript and it's easy and for me it was confusing because it added all these different states of things into the mix right just more stuff i had to know about it's no javascript easy to code what was the other thing you said? Um, it's one of those like, here's three things, pick two. Easy oh, to develop. Oh, fast. Yeah, no fast JavaScript. Easy to get this thing out. Uh, yeah, you can't you can't have it all. So, I, and again, you know, the caveat, like people are building everything under the sun with this, like all these games and things, and that seems neat. I think maybe the most compelling use cases I've seen are are backend teams that are building basically like live dashboards to to monitor their stuff, right? Or or people that are building basically these crud web apps that don't need to have a full-on API and spa split, right? Uh, I think actually one of the coolest things that I saw were real-time form validations because that's a huge, huge UX thing for users. Uh, the, you know, like when you click save, you don't have a full refresh that kind of removes the removes your con- like resets your context. It all happens live there, and I think I think to me those are like the most compelling use cases for this. I don't know if people. Uh, basically, I think there's a time and a place for it, and it's cool that people are going wild with, with um, examples. But I think, like, for what it says on the tin, yeah, it gets pretty close. With the caveat of it adds complexity elsewhere. If you're fine taking complexity away from the front end side of things and taking complexity out of JavaScript and putting it somewhere else, then that's probably okay. For me, until there are, there's a lot more documentation and examples around it. I think I would rather keep it in JavaScript because that's where I'm already familiar and comfortable with. I have some headcanon surrounding LiveView. Sure. So Chris McCord works for Dockyard, and Dockyard is a pretty big consulting firm, right? They're always taking on new clients who want new web applications and whatever. And how many clients, I'm just picturing clients coming to them being like, hey, we want this single page app, you know, front end with this tech, back end with this for all this interactivity and stuff because we need it because that's what everyone's doing right now. And mm-hmm. Chris is back there being like, no, you don't actually need that. 
and then closing his door at office and like writing live view in three months and coming out and being like, see, you just need elixir. <laughs> you don't need <laughs> yeah, a single yeah. page app. <laughs> like, I, because, I, yeah. because that's, that's really in my mind, you really nailed it. That's really what this is for. This is like rails. is so good at these little small to mid size applications for specific businesses, crud side applications. It's very, very super productive in that. And Phoenix is also good at that. And this is just like, the icing on that cake. It's like, hey, you can have this uh, businessy database application with a little sprinkle of uh, live stuff on it that you couldn't have uh, done before without a lot of extra effort. Yes, yeah. That's that's really how I see this. Yeah, I think I think that it's perfect for exactly the situation you described it because I did work for a consulting firm for three or four years and I did build a bunch of MVPs and Rails and things like that, and we did get all these. I remember, oh my. Oh my gosh. I remember this one project I worked on. It could have been a simple server rendered application. And I think they would have actually been successful if that were the case. But instead what they did was they had this crazy, uh, and I I don't say that, I don't say this to me, like I don't think Java is a good language or a good ecosystem, but they had this just huge API that was written in Java. And then they had this gigantic like angular app and it it was way overcomplicated, way, 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 way overcomplicated. And, uh, it made, so we were doing the design for it. And so I had to basically jump into that situation and put together the UI and that was a mess. And every other, like every other day, the, the backend engineer was like breaking the build. And so we had to jump on a phone call so I could get the thing to compile on my computer so I could just build a UI for it. Right. Uh, it was a mess. It was really a mess. And the whole thing could have been just a simple server rendered app. And they could have used, if, if LiveView was a thing then, they could have totally used it and it would have went out the door. If I remember correctly, they were having so many problems because there's so many different moving pieces to this application that I, I think they just ended up going under. I don't, I don't think it exists anymore. Wow. Yeah. It was, it was a mess. It was, it, it, was, it certainly was, um, they, they jumped ahead too, too many, too many rungs on the ladder, I think. They skipped the whole MVP phase at that point. But yeah, like LiveView would have been perfect for that. I think LiveView could have been really good for a lot of things early on in DK, but it just wasn't around. Uh, so, you know, we ended up, uh, originally they ended up bolting View on top of it. And so the page would render from the server and then View would boot up once it rendered, which had its own problems. But that was that was okay for a long time. And so if I'm thinking about it, replacing the kind of hacky like booting up after the main page renders with if you replace our live view, we prov- we probably could have gotten really far before we needed to add anything more complicated than that. Yeah. It's it's really interesting to have this whole spectrum of of tools available to us makes makes the decision making process uh, a little what one step more complicated now when you're deciding what you want to use for something, but it's cool to have that tool in the toolbox. Yeah, it is. It's, I guess one cool thing, and I don't want to drag this out for too long, but one cool thing and that I've been learning, I suppose, in all my, like my language and framework jumping the last few months is there's just like the, the things that you need when you build a web app, they're the same, they're the same things that you need. And so then once you isolate those things and by things, I mean like routing, you know, MVC or whatever your paradigm is, um, uh, user authentication, user authorization, whether that's policies or what have you, right? Like the main things, the basics are the basics, regardless of what language or framework you're using. Uh, and then from there it becomes what's the ecosystem look like, how proficient I am, am I with this, whatever framework, right? Uh, and I think that was something that I've never realized before. Like I knew like obviously across applications, authorization is authorization, but for whatever reason, jumping across all these frameworks and these languages, it really solidified. It allowed me to distill the, the moving, the big moving pieces or concepts, the things that every web app has, it allowed that to like be separated in my brain somehow from the integration details or the, um, not integration details, but the implementation details across languages or frameworks. So I don't know. I guess if that's one thing that's come about of my my indecisiveness lately, it's been perspective maybe. I don't know how else to, to summarize that, but besides perspective. But I did start, I'm just going to release a book maybe because I have all these blog posts that are in progress in my notion. Uh, but I did start writing a, a guide essentially, like here are the big moving pieces of a web app and uh, yeah, if anyone finds thinks that might be useful for the, useful for them, I'll I'll finish it and put it out there. 
I think you should finish it regardless. It sounds you've talked about this for a while, and and I've seen some of the drafts going up there in the in ocean. I I really like the direction this is going. Yeah, I think I think more than anything, it just it helps you. I don't know. It's like looking at a map, right? Like you're looking if you're looking at the landscape, you can see a landscape. Once you look at a map, it helps you identify things that are farther away. I don't know. It gives you perspective. I don't know. It's uh something that I think maybe I should have done earlier because what I've done javascript ruby and elixir <laughs> so now yeah i'm just jumping into all these different uh, interesting languages and and i feel like i'm learning a lot from it so yeah anyway that's a, a very long-winded a very long 25 minutes of what i've been up to well if you want to tell sean about the next language that he should learn oh no or framework or language that compiles to the web and mobile <laughs> Oh yeah, I would yeah .net five or what is it .net five? I think .net five. Yeah. And then Greg has been that I, that was another interesting thing I've been thinking about is continuity, I suppose, right? So like people are loving React and React Native because it's the same same ecosystem, and you're you're compiling to different targets essentially. And I thought it was interesting that like .net uh, five is coming out, and it seemingly will target mobile and web and all that, and then um, also. Greg's been talking to me about uh, Dart and Flutter, which is from Google. You know, .NET being from Microsoft, Google having Flutter and Dart. That's basically doing the same thing. It's a strongly type language, has its own runtime. Uh, but Dart can also, I believe, compile just down to JavaScript. And I believe they're also adding the setup where you'll be able to build not only mobile apps like native mobile apps, but also web, target the web as well. Interesting stuff. You made me, you, you did that to me. You made me say all that stuff. That sounds like another whole topic for a whole other show, which we will we'll, we'll put that we'll put that in the bank for now. But all right, <laughs> and then just to wrap things up, of course, we always appreciate feedback, likes, comments, shares. Smash that like button. Smash it. Subscribe. Like and subscribe. <laughs> uh, tell Sean. Uh, what? Uh, tell us what kind of new things that you've discovered. Anything you've been playing with? Front end, back end, web, mobile, languages, frameworks. Let us know at DNC Show what is the hottest, cool new thing that you like. We need to know. We need to know. It's how we discover these things. I like. I learned about Elixir and Phoenix through a podcast. <laughs> like, it's literally. Uh, it's just how we discover things these days. At least yeah. in our circle. I don't know. Uh, at Sean Washbot for Sean myself. I'm Shrockwell over on Twitter.com on the Twitters. Yeah. I actually spent about 20 minutes on LinkedIn today, so you can hit me up there if you want. No, uh, no thanks. Show notes are available. <laughs> show notes are available at dnc.show. Uh, yeah, I'll I'll put links to everything. I put links already to the docs for live view and, and all that stuff. So uh, yeah, head on over to dnc.show and check out the show notes and uh, have a look for yourself. LinkedIn Rockwell Shrock. Oh, iOS and web application developer. That's me. I can't even see my profile because I'm not logged in. Are we connected on LinkedIn? I don't think we've connected I officially. I highly doubt it. Oh, this has my address from uh, like seven years ago. shouldn't put your address on the internet, Rockwell. Well, my hometown. We're connecting. Send now. I just sent you a connection. Uh, denied. Yeah, spectrum.chat. Take it away. We'll also, uh, yeah, post the show notes, DNC show, spectrum.chat as normal. Come say hi. We, uh, we missed, we had an uh, very bad omission in last week's show notes that has been rectified. We have put the Telnet address to the uh, Star Wars Spectacular, which I learned that if you connect over IPv6, it will display in color. So hmm. it's a diff to up- update everything to IPv6 for you. Got no idea what you're talking about. Uh, if you're looking for a job, speaking of jobs, uh, if you're looking for a job, head on over to spec.fm slash jobs, and they've got a nifty little job board there. Looks like Reactor is still looking for some engineers and designers. Looks like Datadog is looking for an engineer. That seems like it could be cool. You could live and work in New York, Paris, or remote. Uh, so, yeah, head on over to spec.fm slash jobs if you're looking for greener pastures. <laughs> or Design Collective, apparently. Or Design Collective. Uh, I've gotten, I had two people text me their resumes. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how you get awesome. things done, I guess. Yeah, it's awesome. It's great. It's awesome. I'm, I'm happy. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Uh, yeah. And as always, thank to Spec FM for having us and putting up with us and letting me ramble for 30 minutes. Well, thanks to you, Rockwell, for letting me ramble, but also thank to Spec for 
putting that out there. And if you're also interested in other design and developer related podcasts, you should head over to spec.fm and check out uh, what they've got going on over there. This week's episode of Does Not Compete was edited by Mikhail Delport and produced by Sarah Jackson. Oh man, we got, <laughs> I feel like we barely even scratched the surface. We got so much more for next week. Just spin it around. Just flip a Yui. We'll, we'll do it again. <laughs> back to back. Yeah. I was tired earlier, but now you got me all fired up. Oh man, sorry. Not sorry. It's all right. I need you to, f- maybe we should just start recording in the mornings. I don't, I could stop drinking coffee. <laughs> That's perfect. All natural. Well, see it. I'll talk to you later. Thanks again to Datadog and Century.io for sponsoring this week's episode. Datadog is simply the best performance analytics solution for your application. Empower your team with powerful trace filtering, deeply integrated metrics, and a beautiful dashboard. And it'll be easier than ever before to identify, analyze, and resolve performance issues in your application. You can start a free trial today at datadog.com slash does not compute, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. And thanks again to Sentry.io for sponsoring as well. Don't wait for your users to report errors to act on them. Iterate faster, improve your customers' happiness, and make a better product with Sentry's comprehensive error reporting platform. Check them out at Sentry.io. Sentry.io.